You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. It is January 29th, 2022. And this is episode 315. If you didn't catch yesterday's episode about Evangeline Lilly, star, one of the stars of the hit show Lost from my late teenage years, early 20s, also plays the Wasp in the Marvel Cinematic Universe alongside Sidekick 2, kind of a Sidekick 2, if you will, Ant-Man. Evangeline Lilly tweeted out her support for the Canadian trucker convoy either in Ottawa or en route to Ottawa, the capital city of Canada, with a mission to force Justin Trudeau to resign. Before we get any further into this episode, in which I'd like to talk about The Jungle Books by Rudyard Kipling, I want to say I'm sorry. I messed up. I made a mistake yesterday. I know, it's shocking. You can't believe it. It's so unlike me to make a mistake, but even I make mistakes. What can I say? I said in yesterday's podcast episode that Evangeline Lilly had posted to Twitter her support for the Canadian trucker convoy. It was not actually her Twitter. Actually, her Twitter, where I went to look for the posts and see what else she had posted here recently after reading the story at Not The Bee, talking about it. Her Twitter has been pretty well dormant since the summer of 2021. I'm not sure why that is. I hope it's because she realizes that Twitter is a uh, den of vipers. And it's just not worth the time and the hassle. There's better places to invest your social media presence. Instagram is actually where she posted her support for the Canadian truckers and for the protests against the vaccine mandates in general. Nobody should be threatened with loss of their freedom or their ability to provide for their families and themselves just because... They don't want to inject themselves with an experimental vaccine. By the stats I saw at the Mayo Clinic's website, the most vaccinated states in the U.S. include Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Washington, D.C. Did you realize that Washington, D.C. is a state... Mayo Clinic knows something we don't. I thought that Washington, D.C. was just being proposed as a new, fully-fledged state of its own. Why don't they just go the whole way and make themselves their own separate country? They could be the Washington, D.C. Autonomous Zone. Was. The capital that was. (laughs) Something like that. But... After D.C., which is not a state, Mayo Clinic, Illinois, Maine, Connecticut, Hawaii, 
Maryland, and Virginia are among at least one dose most vaccinated, fully vaccinated for 5 to 11-year-olds, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Maine, Illinois, Connecticut, Maryland, Virginia, Minnesota, Hawaii. Interestingly enough, for the 5 to 11-year-old range, Washington, D.C. does not show up on the top 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. D.C., which is not a state, does not make the top 10 when you're looking at fully vaccinated status. But at least one dose, they make the top 10. I think that's kind of odd and interesting. For 12 to 17-year-olds, Hawaii, Vermont, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Maryland, Virginia, California, New Jersey, and there's Washington, D.C. again. 66.9% of 12 to 17-year-olds in D.C. are reportedly fully vaccinated. D.C. comes in at number 10 in the top 10, with Hawaii at number one spot, 78.8%. For 18 to 64 adults who are not senior citizens, Rhode Island, Hawaii, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, Maine, New Jersey, Vermont, Maryland, and Washington State, which is an actual state, unlike Washington, D.C., which is not an actual state. There we have numbers in the 80% range, 837, 82.7, 82.8, 82.4, 82.3, 81.8, 81.6, 80.6, 80.5, 79.4, and 79.1%. 65 plus, the 65 plus senior citizen category. Colorado comes in at number 10 with 99.7% of senior citizens reportedly fully vaccinated against COVID. That seems a bit hard to believe. But then again, whenever you talk about what's wrong with some young up-and-coming generation of Americans, like, for instance, my generation, millennials, you always need to be thinking to yourself, who raised the millennials? Who was it that raised us? And if there's something deeply, profoundly wrong with the millennial generation, to some extent, we should be asking what choices their parents made to train them up in the way that they should go so that when they were older, they would not depart from it. Maybe there is reason for optimism in that the percentage of fully vaccinated persons goes down quite a lot. Uh, Not enough, but quite a lot. If you are looking at younger and younger age groups, 65 plus, Fully vaccinated, well, you are the highest risk group. If anybody should get vaccinated, it would be you guys. Then again, 65 plus folks are much more likely to get all of their news from corporate media. And go figure, if the corporate media is telling everybody to get vaccinated, the folks who listen to the most corporate media and see it as most reliable are most likely to listen when they're told to go out and get vaccinated. 18 to 64 year olds, You see, in the case of Colorado, let's just take that one for instance, the percentage dropped from 99.7% with senior citizens to 76.7% with 18 to 64-year-olds. 
That percentage drops still further to 62.9%. With 12 to 17-year-olds, I would never, ever, 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 ever have my teenagers get vaccinated against COVID. Natural immunity, your body producing the antibodies to fight the whole virus, not just the spike protein, is way better. And the cost-benefit analysis tells me that I don't want some experimental mRNA manipulation potentially messing my children up in the decades to come, ruining their ability to have children. Because who knows at this point whether that was the whole idea for going this route as the only treatment when there are other treatments that have been tried and at least allegedly with great success with drugs, medicines, therapies that are already approved that have decades of data to back them up for their safety and efficacy. But then you see from 62.9% for 12 to 17-year-olds in Colorado, the percentage for 5 to 11-year-olds drops to 26.8%. And this, again, is reason for optimism. 5 to 11-year-olds, the percentage should be zero. No 5 to 11-year-olds should need vaccination against COVID. No 12 to 17-year-olds should need vaccination. You are practically bulletproof. You are pretty much bulletproof when it comes to getting COVID and being hurt by it and dying from it. If you are a child, you have almost nothing to fear. The really scary thing for you is the adults who have selfishly compromised the rest of your life and your health moving forward and all of your freedom and your ability to develop communication skills by looking at other people when they speak, seeing their facial expressions, whatever percentage I would make up, a lot of communication, a lot of interpersonal communication is nonverbal. When you cover the face, you are taking away a lot of someone else's ability to communicate besides just muffling their voice, making it harder for them to breathe, decreasing their desire to communicate because they're out of breath already wearing this stupid mask. That's what you young people have to be most afraid of in this whole COVID business. And that's what you have to be most angry about on the other end. And there will be an end to this. By God's grace, there will be an end. This will not go on forever. The younger you are, the more of your life you feel has been taken from you, stolen from you. And it Make sense for you to learn lessons from this. Don't empower big government to make all of your decisions for you. It's lazy. Previous generations of Americans were flat out lazy and self-indulgent and decadent and selfish. And the lesson we should learn on the other end of this is a government which is big enough to give you everything is also big enough to take everything away from you. The government... These bureaucrats, these politicians have nothing to give to you which they don't first take away and redistribute. We have to learn that lesson. And I'm optimistic. I really am. As much as it breaks my heart and boils my blood that these big government types have done what they've done to children in myriad ways, in so many ways. Let's just start with abortion and then carry on to drag queen story hour at the library and on from that into encouraging children to experiment sexually 
encouraging children to believe that there is no God, encouraging children to identify as the opposite gender, to apologize for the color of their skin or what their sex was at birth and still is, whatever they identify as, carry on to the way that our government has spent money by the billions and now trillions of dollars, money that we don't have. It's not even that they're content to spend other people in the present's money. They are spending future generations' money as well. And I hope that young people learn from this and don't repeat the mistake. Don't double down. Learn from it. Turn from these wicked ways. Seek the good Lord's face. He will heal our land and hear from heaven. And that's something to be optimistic about. That's something to hope for and to root for and to pull for and to pursue diligently with all our hearts. Because otherwise we are lost. We are sheep without a shepherd. We need a shepherd because the wolves are real. (laughs) But speaking of wolves, I just recently read The Jungle Book. Or the Jungle Books. I didn't realize it was multiple, but there's Jungle Book 1, Jungle Book 2 by Rudyard Kipling. And these are a bit old by modern standards. Seems as though once something is even a decade in the rearview mirror, we think of it as old. Everything's got to be fresh and rebooted. And even in the case of the live action Disney film that my kids and I watched, here the other night, night before last, or two, two, three nights ago, whatever it was. That was made in 2016. Seems so long ago. And it was a reboot, essentially, a live-action updated CGI, look what we can do with computers, a remake of the animated classic from several decades ago. I grew up watching that Jungle Book. But that animated classic and the live-action remake were both based on Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book, adapting and combining and taking liberties with several stories, different stories about Mowgli, but not just Mowgli. The whole business with the elephants, actually, in the books, not to give anything away, but the whole business with the elephants is not Mowgli in Rudyard Kipling's book. I thought that was really interesting. They wanted to include that, but they had to adjust things in order for Mowgli to be the main story, which is an odd thing. Why does Mowgli need to be the main story? Why does he need to be the main character? Why can't you have some other character pop in? Why can't it be more of a mosaic like the book was. But alas, Disney made their choice there. They adapted it for the big screen. They are the taste makers as much or more as the trend followers. I would say far more they are the taste makers than the trend followers. But I liked the book better. Just plain and simple. I liked the book better. It was a better read than the movie's Even with all the childhood nostalgia of the animated classic, the book was better. It was. 
as I take a sip of my coffee, I will note that my wife didn't quite care for it. She's not sure why. She just didn't. It wasn't her cup of tea. (laughs) But it was my cup of coffee. And actually, I give full marks to Bobby McPherson, my friend, for having recently read for Joseph Crampton and myself a selection from the Jungle Books, which he has recently been reading at our meeting for Writing Club in Gladii Veritas last Friday night over Zoom. And it was a powerful selection that he read, and he read it with full emotion and feeling and explained what it meant to him, and I appreciated that. I I really enjoyed that, Bobby. And actually, I enjoyed it so much that I thought, you know, I'm just going to go read the whole book, or books, multiple, both of them. But Kipling writes in an older style, so the English is formal at points, which I don't think was my wife's trouble with it. I don't know what she didn't quite like about it. She's not sure either. But there's an interesting combination of influences in that Rudyard Kipling is English, uh, British in any event, and he's spent time in India. And India, right around the time of the writing of the Jungle Books, was a major focus for the British Empire. A lot of wealth and power emanated from the crown's holdings in India. And there's more to the story. There's more to it than just Western imperialism and colonialism and evil white people going around the world and oppressing non-white persons. You should read Niall Ferguson's History of the British Empire, titled, intuitively enough, Empire. It's quite good. But he talks about having had family, uncles and whatnot, grandfather, extended family, who had served the British Empire overseas, abroad, on various continents, and how they would come back and bring souvenirs and trinkets and tell stories. And he thought the world of them. And then he goes off to college to find out what they know. And they tell him that the British Empire is this evil, awful, oppressive, no good, rotten thing. And he doesn't like that. It doesn't comport with his view of reality, his experience. His lived experience counts for something. It may not count for everything, but it counts for something. And so he endeavors to make a reasoned defense for the track record of the British Empire. And the interesting thing he points out, I really appreciate it, was that the British Empire had its abuses, had its corruption. There were bad actions taken by individuals who thought themselves not only above the law, they thought themselves the law, and they were racist, and they were oppressive, and they were exploitative. But here's the test for what that says about British society when their deeds were found out and word got back to the home country, those abusers of non-white persons, of the folks whose countries had been 
colonized, those persons who had done the abusing in the name of the British Empire were called to account and were held accountable. And corrections were made because that was not acceptable to the British people. That was not how they wanted to be represented. That was not how they wanted to be seen. That was not how they wanted to be known. They were not okay with it. Now you contrast that as Niall Ferguson does with the rape of Nanking, for instance. Everybody thinks that the British Empire is so awful until you come to looking at the alternatives. The Japanese Empire takes this massive Chinese city and brutalizes, brutally murders and tortures and rapes men, women, and children and takes photographs and souvenirs to commemorate, to celebrate the fact. Because in their ethic, in their worldview, in their cosmology, in their metaphysic, in their religious persuasion, there's nothing whatsoever wrong with the best people in the world doing such. If you think the British Empire is so bad, well then, are you basing your expectations on a keen understanding of human nature, on the realization that anywhere people are, anywhere power is concentrated, wealth is accumulated, opportunity is to be had, you will find people acting according to their nature. You will find depravity. You will find misbehavior and evil and wickedness. And this is true as far back as you go, as far back into human history as you look. And there's no escaping it if you just say, well, I'm not going to read history. I'm just going to read my Bible. Well, then congratulations. It's there too. (laughs) From shortly after Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden until Revelation, there's a lot of blood and dying and death and misbehavior. And the question is not whether there are mistakes made, whether there is bad behavior, whether there is corruption and wickedness. The question is, what's to be done about it? What is done about it? What has been done about it? What will be done about it? That is what distinguishes one empire from another, one people from another, one culture or civilization from another, one worldview from another. So it's interesting to me, in reading the Jungle Books, that you have Rudyard Kipling paying homage to some good things in his experience in India. As a quick bit of history, Wikipedia tells me that Rudyard Kipling was born in 1865 in Bombay, the Bombay Presidency of British India, to Alice Kipling, Nay MacDonald <laughs> and John Lockwood Kipling. Alice was one of four noted MacDonald sisters, a vivacious woman of whom Lord Dufferin would say, quote, dullness and Mrs. Kipling cannot coexist in the same room, end quote. John Lockwood Kipling, a sculptor and pottery designer, was the principal and professor of architectural sculpture at the newly founded Sir G. G.J. Boy School of Art in Bombay. I'm not sure I said that correctly. Please correct me if you know how to say that correctly. 
and I did not. John Lockwood and Alice had met in 1863, courted in Rudyard Lake in Rudyard, Staffordshire, England. They married and moved to India in 1865. They had been so moved by the beauty of the Rudyard Lake area that they named their first child after it. So that's where the name Rudyard comes from. Kipling's birth home on the campus of the J.J. School of Art in Bombay was for many years used as the dean's residence. <clears throat> Although a cottage bears a plaque noting it is his birth site, the original one may have been torn down and replaced decades ago. Some historians and conservationists take the view that the bungalow marks a site merely close to the home of Kipling's birth, as it was built in 1882, about 15 years after Kipling was born. Well, that would have made it very hard, I suppose, for him to have been born there if it wasn't built yet. Kipling writes of Bombay, Mother of cities to me, for I was born in her gate between the palms and the sea, where the world and steamers wait. According to Bernice M. Murphy, Kipling's parents considered themselves Anglo-Indians, a term used in the 19th century for people of British origin living in India, and so too would their son, though he spent the bulk of his life elsewhere. Complex issues of identity and national allegiance would become prominent in his fiction. Now, the interesting thing here is, <clears throat> wherever you are born, where you come from and where your parents come from will make its mark on you. Where you grow up will leave a mark, but so also where your parents are from and their culture of origin. And they may react to certain aspects of the culture that they grew up in and so on back through the generations. You will feel a ripple effect in your upbringing, whether you notice it or perceive it or you don't. But it's interesting to me that Rudyard Kipling is influenced by England, by the fact that his parents name him after the place they met at in England, for crying out loud. And yet he's born in India. And that wouldn't have been possible for him to have been born in India if not for British colonial enterprises in India. So there's a sense in which you can't have Rudyard Kipling without colonialism. And would you rather that no countries, or just take Western European white folk out of the equation for a second, would you rather live in a world in which all people groups just stayed in their own little bubble forever and ever? And if not, well, then what's the alternative? You say British persons, for instance, could have just gone to visit India and no more. You can't set up shop. You can't trade. You can't do business. You can't exchange goods for money. You can't do that. Well, for that matter, once you start exchanging goods for money, if you're just a little dinghy out there, full of expensive, highly valued, highly prized goods in some other culture that may or may not have a strong rule of law that keeps you from being pirated and plundered. It's only a matter of time before some kind of defense of your nation's economic interest abroad 
needs to be close by. There has to be some kind of police power to keep the pirates from raiding your ships, murdering your men, women, and children. And you look at how long these voyages took. They took a long, long time. For a ship to be built was an expensive and long-term enterprise. For that ship to be outfitted, manned, crewed, supplied, and to travel all the way across the world with goods or with money to buy goods and bring those goods back, it was a very lengthy, time-consuming, capital-intensive enterprise. And if your country starts investing quite heavily in the technology and the infrastructure to make that happen, what do you do if all of a sudden pirates and bad actors along the way start abusing your people, your traders? For that matter, what does an individual trader do? If you're going to sail across the ocean, across the planet to do business, do you go without any weapons whatsoever, particularly if you might encounter pirates of various kinds, official and unofficial? What about your rival countries? What about when you encounter the Portuguese and they don't want you cutting into their shtick here? They don't want to share this market with you. They want an exclusive market. And then, oh, by the way, they're Catholic and you're Protestant. So you guys don't agree theologically. They see you as heretics and you see them as apostates. Are you going to go and just take your chances that they leave your ship alone when you're sailing by? And there's maybe more of them sometimes than there are of you. Are they going to take their chances? No, of course not. It's just a matter of time before you have powerful ships capable of defending the economic interests of England and the British Empire. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to have to have a safe place on the coast to repair your ships if they get damaged, to resupply. You're going to have to have a safe place for people to be able to come ashore and warehouse their goods while they're selling, while they're buying while they're trading, for people to be able to get some doctoring, stretch their legs, maybe house their families. And that's how it starts. That's the whole business. And this is as old as history itself. The idea that countries make colonies and do business and trade. Right now, as we look at ships off our coasts not being unloaded, California's coast, last I heard, still had a record number of cargo ships parked offshore, not unloaded. We see empty store shelves. You've got truckers in Canada looking to shut down Ottawa. When the flow of goods stops, you suddenly realize how much of what you take for granted as part of modern life comes from other places. A 3D printer just arrived yesterday. That's going to be part of our homeschooling STEM exploration. Thank you again to My Tech High. Thank you again to Trisha Yonaha, program administrator that we go to church with, for getting us connected with My Tech High and helping us to navigate how to use the program. But we've got a 3D printer to put together at some point here. And right on the box, right on the box. Shenzhen, China. 
is where this 3D printer comes from. So what? You say, <clears throat> we're just not going to have international trade. No, that doesn't sound good to you when produce and raw materials and finished goods, manufactured goods, clothing, electronics in our day come from overseas. You want the trade. Okay, cool. Just wanted to be sure. You want the trade. So you want the trade. <clears throat> what happens if pirates or foreign governments want to hijack that trade? They want to plunder that trade. How are you going to defend your interests? Well, I, I don't know. I just I guess I'll just trust that people are inherently good. <clears throat> okay, sure. Right. Right. But seriously. <laughs> One of the interesting things when you study the British Empire in particular is that the empire built itself around trade and in some sense pushed trade in order to sustain the empire. So it's a, it's a feedback loop, right? It's both and at the same time. That's from an economic standpoint. That's from a military standpoint, from a diplomatic standpoint, from a geopolitical standpoint. But what about from an intellectual standpoint? The British Empire was not just a marketplace for goods and services. The British Empire was a marketplace for ideas, for better or worse. And some of those ideas, <clears throat> like, for instance, the founding of universities and schools, the export of Western innovations, technology, to countries which did not know those things. They have their own innovations, sure enough, but they didn't have all the same innovations that we did, all the technology that we did. That's part of, from a military standpoint, why we were able to come in and dominate our wars of religion in Europe we're not peculiar to Europe. India certainly knows its wars of religion. The Middle East certainly knows its wars of religion. But our wars of religion, not just between Catholics and Protestants, but between Christian Europe, ostensibly Christian Europe, and the Ottoman Empire, for instance, led to not just the development of military technology, but the expansion and founding of colonies protection of colonies, the protection of trade. We need to generate wealth and we need ideas. We need to get out there and get ideas and build up strength at home so that we don't get conquered by the forces of Islam, by the Mohammedans, by the Turks. And in the swirl of all of this, you've got Rudyard Kipling, son of English parents, born and named based on two very different parts of the world, named after England, or a place in England, rather, but born in India. And so what do you do? <clears throat> what do you do when you are growing up in this swirl, in this marketplace of ideas, at this crossroad of civilizations? Well, for one thing, maybe you write the jungle books and you explore the complicated way that you feel about all of this through fiction. You explore and you make sense of and you sort through the mess by coming up with characters who each get to represent 
these dueling realities to some sense. I wonder if Mowgli isn't Rudyard Kipling, feeling as though, in some sense, he is growing up in the jungle, a little man cub, a little frog, that's what Mowgli means, little frog. And he's being raised by wolves who have a code of honor. They have a dignity about them. But also, too, they can be swayed by the tiger, Shere Khan. Shere Khan doesn't want this man cub here. And there's definitely a contingent in India who does not want the British there. However innocent you may seem, we know what you're going to grow up to be. You're going to grow up to be a man with a red flower who burns the jungle down if you don't get what you want. So we're going to preemptively destroy you if we can accomplish that. That's what Shere Khan has in view. Shere Khan is scarred, burnt, wounded from his run-ins with man in the past. The whole jungle is afraid of Shere Khan, but Shere Khan is afraid of man. And he wants to nip this in the bud. And in some sense, that's the story of India and Britain. And I don't know that Kipling meant for it to be allegorical. That's how I'm interpreting it. That's how I'm reading it. Writers have to write what they know. Well, what did Rudyard Kipling know? Being born in India to English parents. He knew that. He knew what it was to be looked at like a completely different species, to be seen as a threat in the making, even if he was posing no threat, even if he meant no harm. He's just sitting at the feet of Bagheera, so to speak. Bagheera is teaching him all these important lessons, like a very open-minded, warm-hearted, good-natured Indian mystic might. I'm your tutor. I'm going to take you under my paw, under my wing. You have this diverse cast of characters. And some of the wolves, they do fall under the spell of Shere Khan. They're going to let Shere Khan call the shots. And I like the book and its complexity much more than I like the movies. I hate how movies are not content for things to be complicated and for people to have to puzzle it out. It's not the visual medium that makes us lazy. It's what they do to oversimplify and water down and sugar up the plot that you have to watch out for. But it's complicated. That's the thing. What they do with movies is also what they do with colonialism and geopolitics. They think they can deconstruct everything, and we should learn a lesson or two from Rudyard Kipling. Sometimes what you need to do is not deconstruct. Sometimes what you need to do is construct something different in a different space as a way of exploring these concepts, not deconstructing them, not taking them down, not taking them apart, not railing against them like some kind of a brute beast, unreasoning and unreasonable. Man cub grows into man. And I love some of the comments that Bobby made reflecting on the selection he read from the Jungle Book about when Mowgli stands up to Shere Khan and the wolves who are siding with, who are thinking that Shere Khan sounds like he knows what's up. That's dominion. That's man taking dominion. Bobby points out, 
And Kipling points out and emphasizes this through repetition. The fact that none of the other creatures in the jungle can hold the stare of the man-cub. And Mowgli likes to look the other creatures in the eye from time to time just to amuse himself, just to see them avert their gaze, because they do invariably. And there's something built into man by God's design, a fear of man that's built into animals since the fall. A fear and a kind of reverence. I think it has everything to do with us being created in God's image after his likeness. And supposing I'm onto something that Mowgli is Kipling. He doesn't know quite where he comes from. He knows he doesn't come from here, but here is all he has ever known. The creatures don't all welcome him. Some of them treat him like it's just a matter of time before you turn into what we know you really are. If I'm onto something with that, one wonders whether Kipling grew accustomed to looking Indians, natives of India, the Indian subcontinent, in the eye, and them averting their gaze. And what do you do with that if your culture is preeminent, your technology is better, but your civilization, your culture is stronger by virtue of the influences of Athens and Rome and Jerusalem, and you know it. And they know it instinctively. Is that racism? Postmodernism? Modern, woke, secular, anti-Western, anti-colonialist, mainstream culture will say invariably without thinking, without a second of hesitation or examination or reflection, of course, yes, yes, that's racism. I'm not so sure. But I did enjoy the Jungle Books. I did enjoy what I think is probably allegory, but at very least is just a good story. Interesting, engaging, well-written, fun. Check it out if you will, if you would. I'm going to leave it there. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.